0: Good afternoon again. Let's uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do come and, and pray that you would be, that you would be enough for us. Uh, Father, that we would not crave those things which are passing away, but we would seek our satisfaction and our hope in you. Father, we pray even as we come and study your word that you would be at work in our hearts by your spirit to do those things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So well, this will come as, as no surprise to you, but the UAE is a very diverse place. There are large groups of people here from a number of different countries and cultural backgrounds. Again, this is not a secret to you. Uh, that means that though, but that means that you might encounter people from a number of different places in a given day, but though that is, that is true, my guess is that most of you, or at least many of you, can pretty easily identify the people that come from your home country. You can probably pretty easily pick them out from a crowd based on the way they look, their language, maybe their accent even when they're speaking English, their behavior, their mannerisms, or, or some other characteristic. You know, Some of you may be able to tell what region of your home country somebody came from based on some of those things. Some of you may be able to tell somebody who was born and grew up in your home country from someone who may have been born and grown up here in the UAE. And maybe they they speak a little bit differently or or act a little bit differently. The the point I'm trying to make is that cultures or or countries or, or people usually have characteristics that define them. Uh, that help you to, well, not necessarily help you, they just have characteristics that help define them or distinguish them from others. It makes them recognizable. So generally, you can distinguish somebody from the United States, from someone from the United Kingdom as soon as you hear them speak. We speak English, but we do not speak it in the same way. Now, the same thing is true for those who are part of the Kingdom of God. Those who are part of the kingdom of God are not identified by their appearance, though, or by the way they talk. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3:28. Well instead, instead, disciples of Jesus Christ are to be distinguished by the way they live. First Peter 1 Peter 1:15 and 16, but as the one who called you is holy, You also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Well, Christians are to be characterized by their conduct, by their way of life. It's not because, as we have seen these last few weeks, because it is their work or their conduct or their, their good works that save them. But it's because their works are evidence that God has saved them, that God has set them apart. That he chose them and set them apart to be holy as he is holy and bring glory to him. So Christians are to be imitators of God so others might come to know him. Others might know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 12 through 26. Luke Luke 6, 12 through 26. And in our text for today, in this sermon passage, we see Jesus begin begin to give a sermon himself, in which he explains what it looks like to be one of his followers. He gives some characteristics of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, so we're going to be studying this sermon of Jesus for the next few weeks. And what I want you to see is Jesus is teaching in this sermon what should mark out or distinguish or come to characterize someone who is part of the kingdom of God? And particularly, I want you to notice that the characteristics that distinguish followers of Jesus, those things that set apart those who are part of the kingdom of God, are internal characteristics. They are not those things that are outward so we might identify someone from our home country based on outward things, but that is not what characterizes someone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. But these inward characteristics, they produce outward fruit behavior. But at their core, they are characteristics of the heart. So the main idea we see today is that disciples or, or followers of Jesus are those who depend on their Lord, on the Lord and find their satisfaction in Him not the things of the world so disciples are those who depend on the lord and find their satisfaction in him not the things of the world and i have two points for you to consider from the text this afternoon the first is the identity of the apostles the identity of the apostles and second is the identity of a disciple the identity of a disciple Uh, So first, the identity of the apostles. So we're going to get to the sermon that Jesus preaches here in a little while. But first, we see Jesus go on a mountain. He goes up on a mountain and selects his 12 apostles. So look with me starting in verse 12. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon Whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Well, this is is not the first time, and it won't be the last time, that Luke records of Jesus withdrawing to pray. If you just flip back to Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke points out that Jesus often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Well, if you uh, read that verse, if, if you're reading this verses or this these verses here that we just read, you might be wondering, well, why is it that Jesus prays? I mean, he is the Son of God; he is God himself. Why does Jesus pray? Well, I mean, if we understand prayer to be communication or communion with God that it is fellowship with God. On one hand, it makes total sense that Jesus would pray, right? He is the member of the Trinity. He has had eternal fellowship with God the Father. So it would make sense that during his time on earth, Jesus would would talk to his Father, that that fellowship would continue. But Jesus' prayers also set an example for us, or set an example for those who are followers of, of Jesus Christ. And Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. I mean, if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, where jesus gives us the lord's prayer well this is what he says right before he starts in and delivers the lord's prayer therefore you should pray like this that's what he tells his disciples you should pray like like this well jesus teaches us not uh jesus teaches us to pray not just by his words not by just this lord's prayer but also by his example so the fact that jesus prays teaches us of our of our own need for prayer But here's the thing. Jesus did not just pray to to set us an example. He did not just pray to set his disciples an example. Jesus prayed because he needed to. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Again, we've seen this throughout Luke. He's fully God and fully man, one person, two natures. And in his humanity, Jesus needed to pray. So I, I like the way one author puts it. He writes, Jesus prayed and obeyed and worked miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, in one sense, Jesus prayed in order to set an example for us. But part of that example was to show us how to depend on the Holy Spirit and trust God's Word. He prayed as one who was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, and his prayers were at the heart of his obedient and dependent life before the Father. And if Jesus did not pray out of necessity, then something has gone wrong with our understanding of who he is. In other words, if we were to summarize what this author is saying, is that Jesus' prayers show that he was depending on the Father, Holy Spirit, to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. So we've seen over and over again through Luke, Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to do the will of God. Uh, This this effort of redemption, Jesus' work of redemption, was accomplished as an effort of the triune God, planned by the Father, accomplished by Jesus the Son, empowered and applied by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus depended on the Spirit through prayer. Jesus depended on the Spirit through prayer. Just notice what immediately follows Jesus' prayers in, in these verses. Immediately after he prayed, he selected his 12 apostles. I think it's it's reasonable to conclude that Jesus went up on this mountain and he prayed for wisdom on who to select as the Twelve Apostles. And Jesus prayed for wisdom to to do his Father's will. He depended on the Spirit. As as one commentator put it, in, in Luke and Acts, as you read through Luke and Acts, prayer preceded every major decision or crisis in the life of Jesus and the early church. Jesus prayed. Now, the the application of this truth to to you and and to me seems almost too obvious to mention, and yet we, we do need to mention it. But the fact is, if Jesus needed to pray, if Jesus saw it as important and Jesus saw it as valuable to have personal and intimate conversation with His Heavenly Father, if Jesus depended on the Spirit to do the Father's will through prayer, how much more do you need to pray? We notice here in, in, in verse 12 that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer. That's how important it was. He goes up and he spends the entire night in prayer. That's how big of a decision it, it was that he was about to make, how much he desired fellowship with his Heavenly Father. So I, I point out that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer, brothers and sisters, not to, to try to guilt you into to staying up all night tonight and, and praying just because that's what Jesus did. Perhaps there are times to do that, but that would probably should not be our regular pattern. However, let me at least ask you, do you spend time in prayer on a daily basis? You went through the the, the course of your day, maybe you don't spend all night in prayer, but do you spend five minutes? When you're faced with your own major decision or your your own crisis, uh, something that you need to do, what do you do? If you're anything like me, when you have a big decision that's facing you, maybe, or a a big problem, maybe your first inclination is to try to figure out how you're going to solve it on your own. Maybe you lose yourself in in worry and anxiety for a while, wondering how all this is going to work out. Maybe you get so overwhelmed that you just kind of like freeze and don't do anything. Instead, I think we should look to the example of Jesus and, and pray. And pray not just in the bad times, not just in the time of crisis, but in the good as well. We give praise to our Heavenly Father for both the good that He brings us and the trials that test us. Now remember our our main idea, Jesus' disciples are those who depend on the Lord and find their satisfaction in Him. Uh, How do disciples of Jesus Christ do this? One way is that they pray. They fellowship with their Father. They seek wisdom from the Father. And so have prayer if this afternoon, if prayer is something as you look in your life and you say, you know what, I am struggling to pray. I'm not sure exactly what my prayer life should be like. I know it probably should not be like what it is today. We do have a couple of good books by the door from our library. I'd encourage you to check one of them out, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. There's much on prayer, much good on prayer in that book. Also, What, what Should I Do If I Don't Desire to Pray? A very short little book. If you don't feel the desire to pray and you want to read and be encouraged to develop that desire to pray, that would be a great book to check out. Check out one of those books, let them encourage you. Go talk to a brother and sister in Christ and ask them to pray for you that you would have that desire to pray. And maybe ask them what your prayer life should look like. Well, the the importance of prayer in the ministry of Jesus is not the only thing that I want you to see from these verses. I want to to take a brief look at these apostles, these 12 men that that Jesus chooses. He sets these men aside. These apostles are are set aside in Jesus' ministry as the ones who are going to be closest to him, the ones who are going to walk most closely with him, who are going to spend the most time with him to get to know him on the deepest, most personal level during his time on earth. He sets them aside to to train them to take the gospel to the nations, and they're going to be those who found and lead the early church following Jesus' ascension uh, back to the, the Father after his death and resurrection. So I, uh, I'm not gonna go and, and try to go through each of these individuals one-on-one and tell you something about each of these individuals. Uh, for one, there's, there's several of these men that we really don't know hardly anything about. Basically, all we know about is they show up in a few verses of, of scripture. But, but generally speaking, taking these men as a whole, we take the, this group as a whole, what I want you to see is that they are just ordinary, common men. Uh, several of them as we saw a few weeks ago were, were fishermen As we saw a couple weeks ago Matthew or Levi was a tax collector who, who left everything to, to follow Jesus and The point is that these were just ordinary men They were not chosen or selected by Jesus for who they were in the world and They were not chosen because they were great leaders in their community or they had had great success in their business endeavors we we're simply chosen by God's good pleasure. And so the the fact that that is true, and we see Judas Iscariot on this list, the one who Luke points out will betray Jesus, I think we should understand that the selection of Judas was part of God's plan. It was not a, it was not a mistake. Uh, Jesus' crucifixion, certainly, Judas's betrayal of Jesus were the acts of sinful men. That is abundantly clear as we go through Scripture. But that does not mean that they were a surprise to God. Jesus' betrayal on the hands of Judas and his death for sinners was part of God's plan from the beginning. And just as his selection of all these twelve men was. And so going back to the selection of these twelve men, I, I do think the fact that they were just common Ordinary men, not selected because they were great men in their communities or or in the world, it points us to an important truth about the nature of discipleship. It points us to an important truth about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that is what qualifies someone to be a disciple. What qualifies someone to be a follower of Jesus is not their worldly success. What qualifies someone is God's grace, His choice and God's electing purposes. Salvation is a, a work of God's grace. Salvation is a, is a gift from God. Salvation is a work of God. Uh, more particularly, or we see that illustrated, though this, he, Jesus is not necessarily setting these men aside for salvation here. He is choosing them to be as apostles. But that tells us a deeper truth about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's nothing outwardly or or from a worldly perspective that distinguishes these apostles. Instead, what will come to distinguish them, because that Jesus has called them, because he has set them apart, because he has saved them, is that they will come to be distinguished by the matters of the heart. They will become holy as Jesus is holy. They will be increasingly conformed into the image of their Savior. And that takes us to the, the second point of the sermon, which is the identity of a disciple the identity of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So look with me starting at verse 17. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. And the whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. So after Jesus selects his twelve apostles up on, on the mountain, he comes back down to a flat place with his disciples. He comes back down from the mountain, and he comes back with his disciples to the gathered crowds. So this is why the sermon that follows from Jesus is called the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. So Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. Um, But if you know something of the Sermon on the Mount, if you read through the Sermon of Luke, you will see that there are incredible similarities between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Basically, for the most part, it's just that Luke's is a little bit shorter. So it could be that, that Luke and Matthew were simply recording the same event, that the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount are the same thing. You know, Jesus could have just come partially down the mountain to a flat place on the mountain and delivered his sermon. Or it could be that you know Jesus was traveling around, he was teaching different people. As he was traveling, he just basically taught a, a different version of the same Sermon on the Mount at another time when he was on the plane. So we have Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain. It's kind of like when we you know, invite guest preachers here to Emmanuel, more than likely those those men who come and preach are simply preaching a message that they delivered to another people, their own church, and now they're delivering to you. Now Jesus may have been doing the, the same thing in his traveling ministry. Well, the, the point is, it's uh, uh, they're very similar, but this is known as the Sermon on the Plain. So take that for what it's worth. If you were curious when you read it, now you know. Uh, But when when Jesus comes down with his disciples, we see a a huge crowd has gathered as they've been gathering throughout Jesus' ministry. It's people not just from Galilee, but they've come from Jerusalem and Judea, which is far south of Galilee, where Jesus is at this time. They've even come from Tyre and Sidon, which were cities outside of Israel. So these are Gentiles who have come and gathered to, to hear Jesus teach, to see him heal people or to be healed themselves, to have demons cast out. And again, when we get to verse 19, it seems as if the crowds are really just pressing in and crowding Jesus. Uh, and that is because, as Luke puts it in verse 19, power was coming out of from him and healing them all. I think this phrase is just another way of saying that Jesus was ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit was on Jesus as he was ministering to heal. You know, it brings up pictures of that lady who touches Jesus's robe and is healed from her disease or from her sickness in in Matthew I think this is another way to say that Jesus was ministering in the power of the Spirit But what I what I want you to notice is that in verse 20 Jesus takes his attention from these large crowds who were gathered There's these these huge crowds that have gathered and he places it on his disciples as he begins his, his sermon Takes his attention from the crowds generally to the disciples specifically and I think that should to tell us a couple of things. You know, first, it just gives us the context of Jesus' sermon, right? He is preaching specifically to his disciples. And that's why we said that these, these characteristics that Jesus is sharing, what a characteristic of someone who his disciples should be. He's teaching and encouraging his disciples. But secondly, Jesus is making a distinction between the crowds and the disciples. And Jesus is making a distinction between the crowds and his disciples Not everyone who came to hear Jesus I don't think this is going to come as a surprise to you, but not everyone in those crowds Not everyone who came to hear Jesus uh, Not all believed they were not all disciples We see this in a number of places in the Gospels if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John Perhaps nowhere more clearly than in John chapter 6 at the beginning of, of John 6 Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread, feeding of the 5,000, a very well-known miracle of of Jesus. Well, after Jesus does this, the next day these these crowds that have been fed, these these thousands of people who have been fed by Jesus' miracles come looking for Jesus. And when they find him, Jesus says this in John 6, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. In other words, when this crowd who had been fed by Jesus' miracle the day before finds him, Jesus rebukes them because they're only looking to Jesus to have their physical needs met. They just want to eat again. They just want to be healed. Uh, They want to be amazed at what Jesus is going to do next. But in, in John 6, Jesus tells those crowds that come that oh, you have it wrong, that, that is all you were looking for me to do. I came to do something much greater. I am something much greater. He says in John 6 that I am the bread of life and that he came to give eternal life. He came to satisfy the spiritual hunger of those who would believe in him so that they would never hunger again. Uh, as Jesus rebukes the crowd and he gives this teaching on, on who he is as the bread that has come down from heaven and John writes that this was a difficult teaching for many of the, the crowd to accept and many turned back from following Jesus from that point on they no longer followed Jesus they did not believe they just want their earthly needs met Jesus tells them, look, you're looking for the wrong thing if that's what you're looking for they turn back and no longer follow him Well, why am I I telling you this? Why are we talking about John 6 and Jesus being the bread of life? It's because I think here in, in Luke 6 Jesus is teaching something by taking his attention from the crowds and placing it on the disciples as he begins this sermon He's teaching that a true disciple a true follower of Jesus is not one who just comes to Jesus to be healed from a disease or to be fed with bread and fish He's teaching that a true disciple is not just satisfied with earthly things. Instead, Jesus is teaching that disciples are characterized by certain things. By turning his attention from the disciples and then preaching, or to the disciples and then preaching the sermon that he does, Jesus is teaching that disciples are those who do not seek satisfaction in the things of this world, but they find their satisfaction in the Lord and look forward to the world to come. His disciples are those who hear his words, who believe, who obey, and who follow. Friends, what does this mean for you? What should you take away from from this fact that Jesus turns his attention from the crowds to the disciples as he begins the sermon? First, I think it means you should ask yourself, what are you wanting Jesus to satisfy? What are you looking to him for? Are you simply wanting him to make your life on earth better, or are you wanting him to provide forgiveness and eternal life? Are you looking to him to to satisfy your deepest longings, your separation from God, or do you want him to simply make your life better? It also means that you should know that growing up in a Christian country, growing up in a Christian community, coming from a Christian family, does not make you Christian. Disciples are not those who come from certain places. And in this case, disciples are not even those who were like following Jesus around in many ways. Instead, disciples are those who have been called by God and who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Even going to church does not make you a Christian. It's like those crowds following Jesus just simply showing up to church week in and week out, even if you've been doing it since you were born, that alone does not make someone a Christian. There are plenty of people who attend churches throughout the world who may even say that they're followers of Jesus. They may even say that outwardly, but they do not believe. And friends, this is one of the reasons we take church membership seriously here at, at Emmanuel. Just because you would attend church does not make you a member of, a, of Emmanuel. We're certainly glad to have you here. We want to have you keep coming back. But before anyone joins the church, we wanna take time to sit down and and talk with them, uh, to hear how it is that the Lord has changed them, what what following Jesus has looked like in in their own life. Uh, The church is a visible picture of God's people. It's a visible picture of the new heavens and new earth where there's a multitude of every tribe and tongue and nation before the throne of God. So we wanna make sure as best we can, that those who, who join the church are members of God's people that God has called them and changed them that they have repented and believed and even as I say that I encourage you if you have been visiting Emmanuel for a while if you think you are a Christian uh, please do join the church we would love to have you do that to join is to publicly proclaim that I am a follower of Jesus I am a disciple, and I want to be united to God's people and counted among God's people. I want to be part of the people who Jesus turns his attention to. If you want to know more about that, as I announced a little bit ago, in a few weeks we're hoping to have another Knowing Emmanuel class where you can learn more about the church. It's the first step in our membership process, so we'll get back to you on a final date soon. Well, that finally finally brings us to this sermon that jesus begins a sermon that we'll be looking at for the next few weeks the sermon on the plane and jesus begins this sermon by giving a series of contrasts a series of blessings on one hand and woes on the other these blessings teach that disciples are marked what marks a disciple is that they depend on the lord and find their satisfaction in him not the things of the world On the other hand, the the woes are pronounced against those who seek their satisfaction in this life, who just want their bellies filled, who just want to be healed, who just want to have their best life now, but will find judgment in the life to come. So we're just gonna kind of go through these blessings and and woes are a series of contrasts. We're just gonna go through them with the remaining time that we have. And the, the first beatitude or the first blessing that Jesus gives is found in verse 20 jesus says blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of god is yours and that is, is contrasted with the first woe which we find in verse 24. but woe to you who are rich for you have received your comfort and in, in the sermon on the mount where we also find jesus beatitudes, the attitudes matthew uses the term poor in spirit blessed are the blessed are the poor in spirit as opposed to just poor as as luke uses here I think that idea of poor in spirit is helpful. I think it helps us understand what what Luke means here when he says, "Blessed are the poor." He's not primarily referring to the material or the financially poor, but those who are poor in spirit. Those who are humble before God. They are humble before others. Now, certainly, there may be a connection to material. Poorness or uh, to be financially poor as as those who are financially poor may learn to depend on the Lord To meet their needs because they do not have as much means to meet their own needs But that's not necessarily true And so what Jesus is really focused on is, is Jesus is focused on an attitude of the heart so to be poor or to be poor in spirit what Luke means to be poor is to confess that morally you are bankrupt before the lord you are poor you do not have anything to offer him to make you worthy of his favor it is to come before the lord and ask forgiveness and depend only on Jesus' death and resurrection for your salvation salvation is a gift of god's grace We're chosen not because you are worthy of God's grace, because he has generously given it to you in Christ Jesus. Well, then in the same way, this woe that that Jesus speaks against the rich is not necessarily against those who are actually wealthy, but those who are, are proud. Again, it's not totally separated from financial wealth. I mean, in other parts of the Gospels, Jesus says that it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? it's so tempting for those who are wealthy to trust in their own possessions. It is so easy for them to put their security in their own possessions. They can get themselves out of all sorts of trouble in this world with their money. They're esteemed in this world for their money. And so it's tempting for those who are rich and wealthy to trust in their wealth rather than in the Lord, and so they become proud. But that's really what Luke is driving at, is this heart attitude of pride that sees oneself as rich before the Lord and rich before others. So the bottom line is that Jesus is communicating that those who depend on the Lord in this life and those who are, are humble are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. They will inherit that inheritance that is kept in heaven for them. All those who are proud and lay up treasures on earth will have received all of their reward and all of their blessing and all of their comfort in this life and will face judgment in the life to come. Well, in verse 21, we find the second blessing. Blessed are you who are hungry now because you will be filled. That's contrasted with the next woe in verse 25. Woe to you who are now full for you will be hungry. Well, it's a, really a similar meeting to, to that first blessing and woe that we looked at. I think that passage from John chapter 6 that, that I that I shared just a few minutes ago really helps us to understand what Jesus means here. Now those who hunger are those who hunger after Jesus. There are those who hunger after the bread of life who will eternally satisfy. And Jesus promises in John chapter 6 that those who believe in him those who taste the bread of life will never hunger again. They will be satisfied. So, John, or Jesus says in, in John, that to, to taste the bread of life, that to taste Him is to believe. Taste means believe. So, to taste the bread of life is to believe in the bread of life, it's to believe in Jesus. And if you do that, you'll be eternally, spiritually satisfied. And for those of you who are Christians, you realize that there is peace and contentment and satisfaction that comes in knowing Jesus even now. We can be satisfied in Jesus even now. We are called to be satisfied in Jesus even now. But we also know that there's something better to come. In the new heavens and the new earth come, and we're sitting around enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoying His presence forever. So disciples are those who look forward to that day. Disciples are those who hunger even now to be fully in the presence of the Lord. Disciples are those who hunger for his justice and his righteousness to reign on earth. On the other hand, those who are, are satisfied in this life and those who seek their satisfaction in this life, those who simply want to have their material needs met, those who simply like those crowds after the feeding of the 5,000 came looking to be fed again, are those who only follow Jesus because they want him to make their life better well, they're going to find themselves repeatedly hungry in this life and jesus is only going to satisfy it until that next meal comes due until their stomach starts growling again until their next financial need comes until the next crisis strikes jesus will only satisfy for a time jesus is oh jesus alone is never enough for them and so they will find themselves hungry or without him in the age to come Friends, if you are only looking for Jesus to give you your best life now, you are going to find that that satisfaction is short-lived. And you will find yourself without Jesus in the life to come. And that takes us to the the final two blessings and woes that Jesus gives. I want to take them together because I think they're communicating a similar idea. So uh, look with me at the second half of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. And then the second half of verse 25. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. So when Jesus mentions those who will will weep, I think he is speaking to those who will weep over the sorrows and the sufferings of this world, who will will weep because of the the trials and the sufferings that they experience, the the pain and the oppression of of this life, Uh, particularly those who suffer for claiming the name of Jesus, those who are persecuted and insulted and slandered because they say, I am a disciple of Jesus. Christ. But those who experience that sorrow and yet remain faithful to the Lord can rejoice even now because one day when Jesus comes again or they die, they will laugh. One day they will receive abundant reward. One day their tears will be wiped away and they will be comforted. The Bible says those who suffer with Christ now will one day be glorified with Him. In Acts we have disciples that after they are beaten for preaching about Jesus. They leave their beating, they leave a time of being beaten physically by uh, the rulers of the city rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Well, they, counted, they count themselves, or they rejoice because they know because that they were counted worthy to suffer with Christ, it means one day that they will laugh, and one day they will be glorified with Christ. And so as further encouragement, Jesus even points to the prophets of old who throughout Israel's history suffered for speaking God's word to his people. Just read about Moses. You know, the people complained repeatedly. Israel in the wilderness complained repeatedly against Moses. Or read about Elijah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Hosea or the list goes on and on. They suffered for the Lord's sake. They were persecuted and mistreated by the nation of Israel for proclaiming the word of the Lord. But they remained faithful because they knew their reward would be great. They knew God was better than anything this world has to offer. On the other hand, those who seek a life of ease and laughter and comfort by seeking first their pleasure in this world, by seeking first the esteem of of others, who seek first and foremost to, to please others, those who seek the favor of this world more than the favor of God will experience Judgment—that That is what this woe is proclaiming. And friends, I think this is a temptation for each and every one of us. I mean, how many churches in the last 20 years have surrendered to the idea that homosexuality is not a sin? Or that a man can become a woman simply to please the world around them? Simply to try to ease the pressure of the world around them? How much easier might some of your lives be if you've abandoned the church for the mosque? Friends, Jesus promises suffering in this life to Christians on account of his name. But he also promises that there is great reward for those who weep and suffer now but remain faithful. Those who suffer with Christ will one day be glorified with him. Those who suffer for Christ will one day be glorified with him. There's a a famous social science experiment that some social science researchers conducted a number of years ago, in which they take children and they place them in a room by themselves. Uh, In that room is a table, they sit the child at a table, and on that table is a small treat. But before the researcher leaves the room, so they're gonna leave that child alone in the room with this treat, the researcher tells the child, now look, you see this treat here. We know you want to eat this treat. But if you can wait for 15 minutes, well, we're going to come back. And if you cannot eat that treat for 15 minutes, when we come back, we're going to give you a second treat. And you can eat both of them at that time. Uh, well, if you have spent any time around kids, you can you can kind of understand probably what happens most of the time. Some kids, like the super disciplined kids, are able to wait and they get a second treat. But the vast majority of kids cave. And they eat that first treat. You know, maybe they can hold out for like three minutes or five minutes or ten minutes. But by the time the researcher comes back, the treat is gone. That experiment tells us something about what the life of a disciple is. Christianity is a message of delayed gratification. If you seek all of your pleasure and satisfaction in this world, if you eat the treat, you will forfeit the eternal reward that is found in Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus Christ are marked by being poor and hungry now, by weeping and suffering now, but they know that they have a reward laid out for them in heaven. That reward is not money or food, but it is full and free fellowship with God himself. It is to be in the presence of God forever and ever for all eternity. And so in this series of blessings and woes, Jesus is teaching that disciples are those who depend on the Lord and find their satisfaction in Jesus, not the things of this world why is it that we can find satisfaction in the Lord? Why is it that disciples can find satisfaction in Jesus even now? Why can I confidently tell you that you can depend on him and that you can wait? Because though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Second Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus gave up the glory of heaven he came to earth. He took on the likeness of man. He took on human flesh, and he suffered, and he died for you. And Jesus became poor that you might become rich. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6:51. Jesus is the bread of life, and he is the bread of life because his body was broken for you. He gave his life on behalf of you that all who come and taste of him, all who believe in him, will never hunger again. He eternally satisfies the hunger of all those who seek him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was crucified, Jesus says this to his disciples, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. He endured the sorrow of the cross in your place. Jesus was hated, insulted, slandered, and persecuted, and tortured unjustly. But he did that for you. He died for you. He did these things that you might receive the kingdom of God, that you might be satisfied, that you might laugh, and to secure an eternal reward, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. And so, brothers and sisters, you can rejoice. You can find your satisfaction in Him, and you can depend on Him. And friends, if you are here today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, let me encourage you to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and to find your satisfaction in Him. Become poor by humbling yourself and repenting. Eat of the bread of life by believing. Turn to Jesus. And to those who are followers of Jesus, to those of you who are disciples, let these words be an encouragement to you. You know, as we were going through this series of blessings and woes, you might have been saying that, well, this is me. I am poor. I am hungry. I am weeping. I am suffering. I am being persecuted. Life is hard. that is true. Let these earthly circumstances, let your earthly circumstances drive you to the foot of the cross. Remember the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, that he became poor, that his body was broken for you, that he suffered and died in your place. Brothers and sisters, pray that God will help you find your satisfaction in Him and not the things of the world. These words that Jesus speaks, these beatitudes that Jesus speaks, are words of encouragement to His disciples, that you might rejoice in Him and faithfully endure because of the reward laid up in heaven for you. And we get a taste of that reward now as God dwells in us by His Spirit. We have the comfort and joy of His presence, but it will be so much richer and fuller in the new heavens and the new earth as we take part in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray.